0: Welcome to Emerging Issues, a program of the Markela Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. I'm Miriam Schulman, the Center's Associate Director. Today we're going to be addressing the topic of sanctuary cities and sanctuary campuses, and we have as our guest Deep Gulasekaram, who is an associate professor of law at Santa Clara University. Professor Gulasekaram teaches constitutional law and immigration law and is well published on the topics of immigration federalism and the constitutional rights of non-citizens. The respondents um, today are associate professor of political science, Peter Minowitz, and the ethics center's director of internet ethics, Irina Raikou.
1: So... Uh, Thank you all for having me this entire semester uh, and for inviting me to to do this. Um, When the topic came up, I just noted for Miriam that this is part of what I research. Uh, I do constitutional law and immigration law and the sanctuary movement and sanctuary cities fit right in the center of that. It's not solely what I focus on, but it's part of a larger question of what cities and states can do what latitude they have uh, within our constitutional structure to make decisions about immigration regulation for themselves. Uh, So I I take it that the real sort of point of our discussion here for this group is to ask whether any school and specifically Santa Clara University should declare itself a sanctuary campus and if so what that would mean for the university to do so. Uh, To get to that question though Because of my discipline, my primer today is shaded heavily towards the legal issues in the background, not the moral, ethical, or normative questions that this group may be more interested in. But hopefully, having provided some of that legal background in history, it gives us some context for the normative ethical questions that we can discuss afterwards. So as just a, a, a broad historical primer, to begin, the sanctuary movement or the idea of sanctuaries began in the 1980s, as we understand it today, the modern sanctuary movement, largely in response to the administration at that time, the Reagan administration's attempt to crack down on migration coming from Central American countries and from Caribbean countries. And so this is post-Mariel Boatlift. You have lots of Haitian immigrants coming into the United States, and in addition, there are civil wars and unrest in Central American countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua. You have significant amounts of migrants coming from those. The Reagan administration started policies of uh, fairly robust enforcement policies against those groups in tradition on the high seas, streamlined and mass deportation policies, In response, the sanctuary movement really started with private organizations, as uh, I think one of the emails this morning went out and said, with churches, and specifically Catholic churches, uh, choosing to shield uh, undocumented migrants, unlawfully present people, who were specifically people from those groups within their churches or within church-owned properties. That movement was a private, in a sense, a private sanctuary movement that it was done by private entities, not by governmental entities. One of, their, um, one, one of the things they did conspicuously was to do it very vocally, right, to be loud about the fact that they were sanctuary places, that they were going to be housing and protecting undocumented migrants um, in their, uh, in, within their physical structures. Partly to, be, to make vocal the policy position, this is where they stood in opposition to the uh, the federal government's policy, using their voice to resist, but also they wanted to make sure that they weren't doing it furtively, that they wanted to be loud um, and conspicuous and announcing their actions and intentions so that uh, there was no claim that they were somehow hiding fugitives or doing so in, in some sort of furtive manner. And this was really the first, if we want to think about it, the first phase of the sanctuary movement. The sanctuary movement then goes to a second phase starting in the late 1980s going into the 1990s and this aspect of the sanctuary movement is when it moves from private organizations to public entities, cities, uh, localities, sheriff's departments, jails, uh, prisons, that sort of thing. Um, And here also you get a significant change from the focus on Central American and and Caribbean migrants to focusing on uh, the the larger undocumented population, including migrant workers, Mexican workers, etc. Uh, by m- the late 1980s, in the second phase, you have, as I said, cities and police departments joining in, San Francisco itself notable, 1989 uh, enacting one of the first uh, very popular sanctuary or very well-known sanctuary policies in 1989, still in force. Today, Uh, prior to that, the LAPD had a policy. It was quite. It was pretty quiet uh, about that policy. Um, And then after the the late 1980s, those sorts of policies came to the fore, and people started learning about them as well. Um, If you look at the San Francisco policy, you can find it online. It is basically one that is is tells you that city funds or the city prohibits the use of city funds to help with um, ICE or immigra- at that time Immigration Naturalization Services, that's what's written in the, do- in the actual ordinance, today it would be ICE, but essentially it prohibits city officials from using city funds and using their official capacity to help with the enforcement of immigration laws. The first part of it actually just says it is hereby affirmed that the city and county of San Francisco is a city and county of refuge, which is how many of the sanctuary policies, at least city uh, type of sanctuary policies, start. Um, Essentially, the idea is that the city is not going to use its resources to inquire into uh, immigration status, and unless forced to by a court order, is not going to cooperate with immigration officials in the, um, in the apprehension of people who might be unlawfully present. This public component where cities, uh, states, counties, jails, prisons are uh, implementing these sorts of policies starts to implicate the constitutional questions of structural power allocation as between the federal government uh, and sub-federal entities, federal-state, federal-local, relationships this is you know broadly stated questions of federalism how we divide power between national how the constitution divides power between national entities and sub-national entities it tests the limits of federal authority and of course the limits of state and local resistance to that federal authority by the mid-1990s dozens and dozens of cities and police departments uh, and even some states pass broad sanctuary ordinances. There there is no single definition of what that means, but in general, uh, they 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 mimic what the San Francisco Ordinance does, which is to say that cities are under no obligation to help with the enforcement of, uh, of of federal enforcement of immigration laws, that city officials and officers do not have to provide assistance to federal immigration authorities unless they are compelled to do so through some court order or a warrant uh, that the city officials would not inquire into immigration status on their own and would not use any official capacity within the city to discover or to enforce uh, federal immigration laws, uh, that no city resources or services would be conditioned upon immigration status and therefore uh, public libraries, city public welfare, etc., none of those institutions would ask for immigration status when providing those sorts of services. Now, this is sort of a suite or panoply of things that cities did, uh, not not to say that every city did all of these things, this is sort of a, 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 a menu of, of the types of things that might be included in a sanctuary ordinance. At some, In some places, a sanctuary ordinance can simply literally be the declaration that the city is a city of refuge or a city of sanctuary, which may not carry any legal effect or direct any um, officers within the city to act in any particular way, but simply as a way of symbolically resisting federal enforcement efforts. Um, there was a rapid expansion of these uh, types of ordinances during the 1990s partly in response to the way immigration enforcement at the federal level was changing in the 1990s. So, starting in the 1990s through 1996, you had a significant explosion in uh, the grounds of deportability and the ways in which uh, people could be found unlawfully present and then removed from, uh, from the United States. Just to give you an idea, by the late 1980s, even as late as 1988, 1988 1989, <coughs> there's a, a, a term of art. in Immigration law called aggravated felony. It's if you commit an aggravated felony, lots of bad things happen. You can be immediately, uh, you know, essentially immediately deported from the United States, as other sanctions on when you can come back. It's you're ineligible for all all sorts of relief. Just to give you an idea, in the late 1980s, that category of aggravated felonies included three crimes. Now, if you look at that section of the INA, it starts with subsection A and I believe goes through subsection V. Each of those might have multiple subsections. It literally includes dozens and dozens and dozens of crimes financial crimes, um, all sorts of uh, drug possession crimes, even uh, minimal levels of drug possession. So you have a rapid expansion of the criminal grounds for. Uh, deportability, and fundamentally what ends up happening is that state criminal processes, low-level county processes, this becomes the primary gatekeeper of determining unlawful presence in the country. Of course, there's still border enforcement, but once one is in the country, the primary way people get into the immigration enforcement pipeline is a first contact with a city officer for a violation that, or some sort of crime, that crime then becomes the predicate offense for for deportability and removability later on. So you have a rapid increase in the undocumented population, or at least the unlawfully present population, those who are eligible for removal, partly because the law now makes millions of people more... Uh, now deportable, who were previously not deportable. And as a consequence, you get the rapid expansion of that population. As I mentioned, state and local laws, state and local law enforcement become the gatekeepers for immigration enforcement. And therefore, federal enforcement activities, and here I'm focusing again on interior enforcement, not border enforcement start to reflect this reality. That is to say that federal law enforcement uh, on the immigration side starts to focus on uh, using state and local law enforcement, uh, prisons, uh, jails as a way of discovering, investigating, and then eventually uh, taking uh, custody of and deporting the undocumented or unlawfully uh, present population of the United States. 1996. Also, through federal law, several programs are created that empower local law enforcement officers to make immigration arrests and to cooperate with federal authorities in immigration uh, immigration enforcement. So we get to uh, uh, another. We start to get to another aspect of sanctuary because at this point, immigration share. uh, Sorry, information sharing becomes the most important aspect of immigration enforcement on the interior. Once federal authorities can get information from state and local law enforcement officers of who they arrested, who they have in custody, that becomes much easier for federal enforcement agents to then uh, take that person into custody, have the predicate offense for them to be removed, and then go through with removal proceedings. New York City attempts to push the, the limits on the so-called sanctuary mo- movement uh, by actually attempting to forbid its law enforcement officers and officials from ever communicating with uh, federal authorities about, uh, about immigration status of anybody they come into contact with. The federal government actually shuts that down. So through federal law, uh, it says that no city, one of the limits on sanctuary cities at least, is that they cannot prohibit uh, officials or officers from voluntarily sharing information with the, uh, with the federal government about the status of somebody they come into contact with. It doesn't mandate that they report uh, who they have, but it also uh, says that cities and states cannot stop people from voluntarily reporting um, the status of people they come into contact with. Post 9-11 and 2000s, we enter the third phase of sanctuary movement. Uh, As I said here, local law enforcement is becoming extremely important uh, to interior enforcement. Um, And post 9-11, you're also starting to see more jurisdictions starting to stake out positions more conspicuously where they stand on immigration enforcement and where they stand on national immigration policies. Late in the Bush presidency, the federal, uh, the federal government begins in, uh, implementing a pilot program that's intended to leverage information from state and local authorities in a much more systemic way. So prior uh, attempts at information, levering, information leveraging look more like a federal official calling or having an agreement with a local you know, sheriff or somebody who ran a local jail and saying, hey, listen, if you end up having somebody you think is undocumented or unlawfully present, give us a call, we'll see what can happen. And so what ends up happening by the late 2000s is uh, a program that is much more systemic uh, and much more automatic. And the pilot program, essentially, the way it works uh, in 2007, 2008, is to... when, uh, when a state and local officer arrests somebody, they will go to a database, and they'll enter that person's name and information into a database. That database then gets, uh, the, the database they're accessing is a federal database. It's called the NCIC database. It's essentially what officers use to figure out if somebody has outstanding warrants from another jurisdiction, if they've been convicted of other crimes, uh, etc. to figure out who this person is and whether there are other concerns they need to be worried about with this person. So with the federal government begins to do is to use when somebody accesses that FBI database they take that name and then shoot it over to immigration authorities and then automatically check that against immigration databases as well so they get an automatic hit if somebody is suspected of being unlawful this program then uh, rolls out from a, a pilot program and by the 2008 2009 Uh, Roll starts to roll out across the United States and then becomes mandatory across all jurisdictions of the United States, and it it gets a name. That name is Secure Communities uh, and was a live program from about 2008 until 2014 when Barack Obama modified it but did not take away the program. Essentially, it is a way of leveraging what every local law enforcement officer wants and needs, that is the need to know if somebody has existing warrants in other jurisdictions, who they are, if they're running from police, as a way of then forcing, essentially forcing them to participate in immigration enforcement activities um, in, a, in a passive way, but in a way that cannot be avoided or there's no real exit option if somebody doesn't believe in, uh, in doing so, because the need to know uh, what about other warrants and other criminal activities is something that every law enforcement officer, every jail across the United States does. Um, But one of the, the key aspects of doing that is that the way in which immigration enforces after, for example, somebody enters a name in a database, is that if a hit comes up, they would then contact that prison or that police station and say, hey, we'd like you to hold this person for 48 hours. And this is part of federal immigration regulations allow for the federal government to ask for an immigration hold and uh, have a local uh, area a prison or, or a jail or police officer hold a person for 48 hours. And this actually becomes, as I said, the third phase of sanctuary movement, pioneered really by counties like Santa Clara County, which in 2010, 2011 uh, enacted an anti-detainer policy. And this anti-detainer policy said, fine, we can't stop uh, our officers from, when they use this database, it's going to go to ICE and it's going to immediately create uh, a, a, a hit if somebody is potentially deportable. But we don't have to hold this person for immigration authorities. That's not something we're constitutionally required to do. It may violate the Fourth Amendment. Furthermore, we're not being compensated for holding this person. It costs a lot of money to keep people in uh, in county or local facilities. Uh, you have to house them. It takes up space. You feed them, etc. Uh, therefore, we are no, no we are no longer honoring detainer request. This movement spreads across the country and actually ends up being fairly effective. Lots of jurisdictions end up enacting these anti-detainer policies based on Santa Clara's policy. California in 2013 passed the Trust Act, a sort of statewide um, limitation on what state and local officials uh, could comply with when federal immigration authorities asked for their aid. In 2014, the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, disbands the Secure Communities Program, or at least this aspect of the uh, Secure Communities Program, citing as part of his reason for doing so the significant opposition he received from mayors, police departments, uh, cities, and and localities all across the country that were essentially undermining the key aspect of this program, which is that somebody would actually hold uh, 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 a suspected unlawful Uh, unlawfully present person until ICE came to get them. ICE has, as big as they are, have limited resources. They can't do the type of policing that you would, that line level officers could do. Then we get to 2015, and one of the significant effects, the incidents that changes a lot of this is the, or changes the conversation about sanctuary cities, is the Catherine Steinle murder in San Francisco, which uh, obviously gets national headlines, high-profile incident, where an unlawfully present person who perhaps could have been removed, we, we actually have no idea whether he had uh, you know, other claims to stay in the country, whether they were mitigating circumstances, etc. But as an initial matter, is somebody looks like they could have and should have been removed, uh, um, is not kept within state uh, within state custody, and uh, in, there's some lost communication between federal and state uh, and city authorities. He ends up with a, a firearm, and that firearm discharges a bullet that ends up killing Captain Steinle. The, in the wake of that, you have several bills in Congress that are aimed at limiting funding to cities that maintain sanctuary policies like San Francisco or maintain anti-detainer policies like Santa Clara County or statewide policies like California's. None of those bills were ever passed. But it's worth thinking about those because those are the exact bills that are being resurrected and talked about uh, in the first few, in the first hundred days of a Trump administration, given that you have uh, a Republican-controlled Congress and a Republican president that would more than likely sign those bills. We can talk a little bit more about how those work, but essentially it's, a, it's sort of a carrot-stick approach. The federal government gives out grants for all sorts of things, law enforcement, law enforcement training, community development grants, and the idea behind all of these bills is that the federal government would leverage the, uh, the, the money that they give or a portion of the money they give to local law enforcement, to states, to community building grants, and would take away that money as punishment unless the sanctuary aspects of that city's, the way in which they police, are also taken away. So the city would agree to cooperation with immigration authorities, would agree to hold Im- uh, immigrants who are within their um, custody, or at minimum would agree to notify federal authorities when they get uh, people they suspect are undocumented. We now uh, fast forward to today, and this gets to closer to where we want to be, thinking about sanctuary campuses. Um maybe thinking about this as the fourth wave or the fourth uh, phase of the sanctuary movement. We have a Trump victory, promise of enhanced enforcement, a promise of deporting 2 to 3 million people very uh, soon into his presidency. That's what he said in the 60 Minutes uh, interview. Just a side note, in order to find 2 to 3 million, as he says, criminal um, aliens, That would mean every manner of crime would have to be counted, even low-level crimes, things that people are caught for all the time, things that we probably don't think are that serious in the whole scheme of things. You would have to count those as part of getting to 2 to 3 million criminal aliens. In addition, you'd not just be talking about undocumented persons, but you'd be talking about lawfully present persons as well. There's no way you can get to 3 million criminal aliens without uh, also including green card holders who commit crimes and then make themselves removable from the United States. States. Again, to get to that number, local cooperation is key. And the other aspect of what Trump has uh, said he would do is to rescind deferred action programs, or the deferred action program that's currently in uh, force DACA, Deferred Action for Child Arrivals. Um, the, on the question of sanctuary cities, obviously the funding uh, and the threat of funding withdrawal makes a significant difference. On the latter, the the DACA program, um, several hundred thousands of undocumented students who were previously in the shadows came out in the last uh, four years, if you want to use that terminology. Uh, and were openly attending school and work underneath that program. Now with the threat of that program being rescinded, that information about their status that they shared at the time, which was being confidentially stored or not shared with, uh, with the Immigration Enforcement branch of DHS, now could be shared with the Immigration Enforcement arm of DHS simply by removing the administrative barrier between uh, CIS, U.S. Uh, uh, Customs and Immigration Services, Citizenship and Immigration Services and ICE, Immigration Customs and Enforcement Agency, Uh, which means that there are several hundreds of thousands of undocumented students who have made themselves known, who are on college campuses, uh, who could be potentially the target of immigration enforcement activities. Not to say they will. I mean, it is still a fairly politically unpopular thing to go after this particular group, on the other hand, it is a population that has made themselves visible. They, you know where they are, easy to find, less likely to have perhaps you know resources or other sorts of support systems. Um, and if you're a low-level line officer, maybe it's an easy mark for you to, to go after this population. So there's been a movement in the last few uh, weeks that people have heard about, uh, campuses declaring themselves sanctuary campuses. Just like sanctuary cities, one thing to keep in mind here is that there is no set definition of what a sanctuary campus might be. It can be anything from a symbolic declaration, we are a sanctuary campus, and whatever, good feelings that generates in the minds of students, in the minds of classmates of undocumented. Uh, But in many cases, it actually does mean something more than that. Uh, On the anti- or the non-cooperation side, it might mean something like, uh, at the very minimum, keeping information about students completely private or reinforcing the privacy of student data, not sharing that uh, voluntarily with any outside agency, um, any law enforcement agency until, unless uh, compelled to do so by a warrant or a court order. It could mean um, directing campus security, never to ask about the immigration status of anybody that they encounter so that they won't learn the immigration status of anybody they encounter. More broader, robust measures might include, for example, prohibiting or attempting to prohibit federal agents on campus unless they have a warrant or court order uh, and a specific uh, reason for being there. Um, Those are more drastic measures. And obviously, these things are going to make a difference whether a campus is a state campus, like a UC or a CSU, versus a private campus, which may have greater latitude as to uh, some of these actions than, uh, than a state campus. Uh, Campuses can also do much more, I guess, pro-integration types of activities, and you see some of this already happening even prior to the sanctuary movement, but now taking on sharper focus in, uh, in this current moment. For example, the University of California system, University of California Davis, for example, actually has a center for undocumented students that helps connect them with resources, serves as a support system for them, provides them skills training. Obviously, some of this was done in, at the time of DACA, thinking that there would actually be work authorization and potentially a path to normalization at some point, uh, and sort of making sure that uh, this, these centers served as uh, support systems for those students as they went through campus or went through school um perhaps finding on-campus employment, et cetera. So that's sort of the range of of things that campuses can do, and obviously California uh, can still make the decision to allow in-state tuition for undocumented students. It can make the decision as it has to provide public finance, some form of financial aid for undocumented students. Those are all things that are written into California law. Would require another law to rescind those sorts of things in California. But again, as I said, broadly speaking, the federal government has levers that it can pull with regards to financing that might put a significant pressure on California as a state to uh, rescind some of those things. Um, and then finally with regards to campuses the likely the major worry here if you're a campus administrator is that uh, fed the federal government, the Department of Education, might think about using that same strategy with regards to grants. To uh, Federal grants are used in almost every college campus, uh, university campus around the uh, United States, whether public or private. And again, leveraging that, that assistance, general assistance under Title 20, Title IX funds, etc., as a way of, of inducing compliance uh, with, uh, or at least inducing cooperation with Federal Immigration Authority. So, that's sort of the broad background uh, from the 1980s to now about this sanctuary movement. Um, so I will stop there and we can open it up to discussion.
2: Irina. Um, In terms of the symbolic impact of a statement by a university, is there a risk of misleading undocumented folks, and especially undocumented students, if if it is simply symbolic and they take it to mean something more like what Mm -hmm. the churches did in the past?
1: Yeah, I think, so, I think it it sort of depends, this is a hard question, It sort of depends on what you, at least in my view, it sort of depends on what you think. The background or default feeling is of undocumented students with regards to their physical security and security in the United States right and so if you've come to really believe that that uh, especially post 2012 that your place here is fairly secure then then I uh, that risk I think is more pr- uh, is is more prominent and more robust of a risk right on the other hand there really is no, you know, there's nothing that anybody can promise with regards to federal enforcement efforts and your status in the United States, right? There's no institution, no state, state police officer, state jail, prison, local county jail, um, campus that can ever promise that federal enforcement authorities can't tomorrow come grab you, put you in removal proceedings, and have you taken out of the country. If that's your default position, then at the very least you know that people here are at least projecting an official stance of this is not our interest. And I do think, I don't know how it plays on campuses. Most, a lot of chiefs of police, a lot of sheriffs, will tell you that it makes a significant difference for them to declare themselves uh, as sanctuary or that their non-cooperation with federal immigration authorities because in the long term it affects their ability to interact with the populations that they most need to interact with migrant communities, vulnerable communities, etc. For that reason, most chiefs of police around the United States actually oppose being drafted into immigration enforcement. That's not to say that's a uniform rule, a uniform view. Obviously, lots of people. Sheriff Joe Arpaio in uh, Maricopa County, um, in Phoenix, is his, somebody who prominently has held himself out as pro-enforcement. That said, he is also currently being indicted for, and I think convicted of, like racial profiling. Or he's been. You know, he's, there's a significant cost to that too. But to answer, get back to your question, um, I don't know how to empirically assess that risk without understanding what your default view is about your own security uh, on campus because ultimately none of these measures can can 100% guarantee non-enforcement. But it is, as I said, that federal enforcement is highly dependent on these local actors and without it, it's not clear that federal enforcement could even happen. The example I always use, it's not a perfect analogy, but the example I always use is mar- low level marijuana uh, uh, enforcement. It's still illegal as a control substance, a Schedule I control substance under the Control Substance Act under federal law. An FBI agent can arrest somebody for simple possession of marijuana. They will never arrest somebody for simple possession of marijuana or even low levels of possession of marijuana. 99% of, I think over 99% of marijuana possession prosecutions are done by state and local authorities. So once the state and local authority says they're not going to prosecute and investigate it, it de facto makes it legal under federal law.
3: Peter? Yeah, just to, to follow up on that, I'm based on what you've said, and it was amazingly <laughs> thorough and, and precise, there does seem to be a difference between a, a college campus and a city or yeah. s- state agency, police, or, or, or otherwise in the sense of the enforcement for the feds has attempted to secure assistance from local cops, this and that, as though you, you arrest somebody, we find out about it, you hold them for 48 hours, then we initiate deportation proceedings under some circumstances. It seems that that type of scenario is hard to imagine happening on a campus. Maybe I'm missing something, and so the campus decision sounds more like civil disobedience or just defiance or some expression of opposition and 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 one parallel would be something like say the drinking age if if a college campus that that would apply to maybe state and or federal federal rules decided that gee they're, they're all drinking anyway let's make it legal and we're not going to co- cooperate with enforcing it we're not going to inform uh, lo- local local authorities if, if the Laws are being violated in, in one way or another. You mentioned marijuana; the p- parallel, even something like sexual assault, where there's been tremendous pressure coming from the Department of, Administer- of, Department of Education mm-hmm. to be more aggressive uh, in in prosecuting it and in how, how the hearings are conducted to alter the balance between the accused. And the defendant. So there may be circumstances where we'd all agree some form of civil disobedience mm-hmm. is called for, but it, it does seem to be pushing it a little bit mm-hmm. for a college to say, uh, to have a, a, a really pronounced sanctuary policy mm-hmm. parallel to a city or a state.
1: Mm-hmm. It could be. I mean, I think there are a couple things, right? one. There are some specific legal concerns that, that for example, the 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 church movement of the 1980s uh, and college campuses might have to think about that are a little different than um, than a city or state. And one of those distinct legal issues is the issue of of. Colleges provide housing in the form of dorms, right? The churches were housing people. There is a distinct legal issue there with regards to whether harboring provisions of uh, of, of, of federal immigration law could be applied, anti-harboring provisions, I should say, to them. Um, and so, in that sense, it, it's it's you know there is a live issue for them to at least consider. I don't know how robust that is. Um, I do think the other things are not so, it depends on if you want to think there's civil disobedience or not, right? What's your, uh, is there, because I think there is, this is just a, this is a a long line of constitutional cases about the 10th Amendment, and what, you know, the, the power of the federal government, they can't force anybody to participate in federal enforcement of anything. The federal government has its laws, has its uh, police, has its FBI, its investigative units, DEA, etc. It can go about doing what it wants to do with its resources, but a long line of cases, actually many of which started by uh, through conservatives uh, trying to, the most prominent one is uh, attempts to resist the Brady handgun bill. Right, so the Brady handgun bill, as created had a provision that said that if you want to sell a handgun um, within a jurisdiction, you have to go get uh, a background check run by um, the, uh, the chief law enforcement officer of a county, usually the sheriff, right? So the sheriff of Santa Clara County, the sheriff of San, uh, San Francisco, a gun, a gun shop would then send that infor- you know, person's information to them, they'd check the background and send back information and then the sale could or could not be accomplished. So that's how the federal law was structured, and the resistance to it, the constitutional claim there was that the state autonomy and state, state difference, uh, state sovereign power different from federal power, makes it such that the federal government cannot essentially co-opt or commandeer these local law enforcement officers into a federal regulatory scheme and the court in the mid-1990s upheld that claim and struck down that portion of the Brady handgun bill that required that type of cooperation. So what does that tell you? That tells you that as a general constitutional principle, I mean there's, some new, there's obviously nuances I'm glossing over here, but there is no requirement that you have state entities, unless they want to, unless they feel like there's, there's you know, some reason that they want to or they make a conscious decision to, to, to do so to participate in that scheme. So there's really nothing wrong with any of them saying, we'll do so if you have a court order, if you have a warrant to do so. It's, it's similar to an individual. You're not required to participate in your own prosecution by offering up evidence, right? You're not uh, you're not required to give up your, the search of your home without a warrant, right? And so it's a similar type of claim with regards to that. So I'm not sure I'd classify it necessarily as civil disobedience unless you want to classify the the vocalization, the very conspicuous act of doing it as a form of resistance or civil disobedience, but it's not actually illegal. Um, I do think that, and this gets back to Irina's question a little, I do think that there is something to be said about a space in which an individual can Openly share their status and can give information out about their status without fear of repercussion, right? Um, I think there's a psychological cost to keeping that, you know, to keeping that hidden, and this this is a connection between uh, the as, and this is why I think Dream students, undocumented students, adopted the terminology of the L G B T movement as a coming out, and you saw coming out movements from you know the late 2000s into the first uh, term the Obama presidency because to them it was a big deal to be able to not to not hide a status and to say it out loud. Now, I think one one of the things that a sanctuary campus movement might do is at least provide that small space where you can say it out loud and not be in the shadows even though you probably have to be careful everywhere outside of that campus about what you say. So, I don't know, those are some some thoughts.
0: I just had a point of information. You said there's now a long list of felonies for which you can be deported, and I understand illegal entry mm-hmm. is one of those. Yeah. Um, but if someone has committed what we might all accept as a serious crime, rape, murder, um Is there cooperation between local authorities and federal authorities in those cases, or do they just consistently refuse to cooperate?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. That really requires a more granular look at each of the types of um, ordinances and and anti-sanctuary, anti-cooperation, or or anti-detainer policies that, that exist. So, Santa Clara County is, as I said, one of the most robust and is unlikely to cooperate uh, under almost every circumstance with federal immigration authorities. But that's, and I will say, part of that is based on cost reimbursement, right? It's not purely, uh, obviously a lot of this is based on a particular stance one wants to have with regards to uh, immigrants or people within the community. But the other part of it is cost reimbursement. There is no, the federal government reimburses um, only a percentage of the cost of housing somebody. Second, there are potential legal costs. There's a couple of cases out there where people were held, let's say the city doesn't want to hold somebody anymore, it's not within the city's policy or the county's policy to hold somebody, but they hold somebody purely for the immigration authorities. That might be a Fourth Amendment violation and some courts have so held, which then exposes the county or city to legal liability and damages claims from those people being held. California's statewide policy tracks what you're saying a lot more. That is to say, California says for serious, for, and they have a category of serious felonies, we can dispute or we can argue about what, whether that category is correctly defined or not. Those, for those types of things, there can be communication with federal authorities, or it's fine to communicate with federal authorities and give them notice, but for all other types of um, for all other types of, of crimes that there should be no forced cooperation with federal authorities, and it's the state's policy not to do so. So it really, those types of things, really, you have to look at the granular um, provisions.
2: Right. But, but to your point, Miriam, if if somebody committed that kind of crime, they're unlikely to be let out, and they're going to prison. So it's it, we're talking after they serve their sentence, right. whether right. they get kicked right. out or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, quick question: um, Could Santa Clara copy the policy of the San Francisco City Council, i.e., declare itself a place of refuge, say none of its funds and property shall be used to help enforce immigration law, um, so that it's one step beyond sort of a symbolic statement. And I'm thinking in part because then if somebody were to challenge that legally, we could get at least, I'm guessing, amicus briefs from, I mean, all the other places that have the same policy mm-hmm. would get engaged in such right. a challenge, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, and I think that that would be a fairly easy challenge to win. I mean, this has been, these sanctuary okay. ordinances have been around, as I said, since at least 1989 when San Francisco codified it and made it very clear what it was doing. The LAPD had its policy from the late 1970s, quietly, but had that policy. The NYPD had a similar policy. So these have been around, aspects of them have been challenged, but for the most part, people, even people who don't like them understand that cities and states are not really doing anything that is outside the boundaries of what what they're allowed to do. The one prohibition, as I said, that's very clear is that you can't prohibit somebody from voluntarily communicating with federal authorities. And this is where the idea of even having the information matters, right? So one of the things that universities might do is also more tightly control who has access to information about immigration status, because once that information is out, even though... No, you can't control. You you may be able to control what somebody does on their official time and what they do as part of their official responsibilities. You can't stop them from calling up a federal hotline that uh, that is set up and saying, "Hey, I have information about somebody who might be deportable or unlawfully present. You should come get them." Right? So,
2: would you recommend that the university implement a policy like that? I,
1: I mean, I I certainly I certainly would. I mean, I, I there's nothing. I don't think. I will say that I don't think there's any particular cost to the university separate from the cost that might be, uh, you know, assessed on every university that attempts to take this sort of stance, right? So there's nothing that's ever going to happen to one individual university, but you could see sort of a nationwide move towards the leveraging of funds to, you know, to take away to take away funds in exchange for cooperation. But if that's going to happen, I have a—I highly doubt it's going to happen because these campuses were acting in, to the full extent of their autonomy underneath the law. I think that's a movement that's already happened, um, and cities and states are doing it, so it wouldn't be that difficult to change a provision of in some new bill that included... Block grants to universities and Department of Education funds, assuming that that is a politically popular thing to do, which it may not be a very politically popular thing to do, right? To go after this particular population as opposed to cities and and state, um, you know, county officials, where you can use people like the you know the Catherine Steinle murder as ways of getting people energized about taking away those funds. Hard to do that with regards to campuses, and moreover, you know it's not clear to me that uh, that making yourself public as a sanctuary campus may not have that great of an effect but also that's not the thing in my view that's gonna cause the federal backlash